following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. <clears throat> Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and even every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He said. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. And I will pray for Philip as he comes to preach. <laughs> Father, we thank you um, for Philip, for the words he's prepared and the time he spent studying this passage. And pray for him as he shares with us that we would be receptive to what he has to say. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jenny. It's lovely to be with you all. Uh, my name is Philip Fleming. I serve as Warden of Cranmer Hall and, uh, and a member of the congregation here at St. Nick's. So it's great to have you here. Now, um, last Friday, many of us uh, from St. Nick's were in York Minster to witness the consecration of our vicar, Aaron, uh, as a bishop in God's church. And what a joy it was to celebrate with Aaron and Joe and Indy. And, and one of the early parts of the service involved lots of dressing up and lots of people in funny clothes. But anyway, but before that, there were some really meaningful bits of it as well. One of the early parts of the service involved the Archbishop of York asking the questions of the people who were going to be consecrated, sorry, asking the questions of the bishops who were sponsoring the people who were going to be consecrated. Do you believe them, I these two people standing in front of them, Aaron and Rob, do you believe them to be of godly life and sound learning? Do you believe them to be of godly life and sound learning? It's an interesting question to ask first up, isn't it, really? I mean, the Archbishop doesn't ask, have they got the right academic qualifications or managerial skills to do the job? Um, he inquires instead about deeper matters of character and belief. And that's almost like the key question that has to be answered before the rest of the service can go ahead. Are they of godly life and sound learning? So questions of character, I, what's going on in the heart, go actually to the heart of the current debate over our present and our future Prime Minister. One of the striking things in the letters of resignation that preceded the fall of Boris Johnson is that those who resigned were not questioning his policies, but rather his character. 
He was judged by them to be untruthful and lacking integrity. And for me, one of the more dispiriting aspects of the current leadership contest for our next Prime Minister is the focus on narrow questions of tax policy rather than the deeper issues of character integrity which need to be reinstated at the heart of public life. But questions of character are also played out in the television that we watch. Um, any Stranger Things fans here? Yep, yep, a few. Good, that's good to see. Well, Stranger Things is great. If, you, if you're not on planet Stranger Things, just switch off for two minutes. Stranger Things is fab. My children got me into it about five years late. That's the story of my life. But anyway, they got me into it, and I'm now caught up with Series 4. But one of the things, when you watch Series 1, and you kind of introduce to Dr. Brenner, who's this kind of slightly maverick scientist, is you're kind of wrestling with a question. Is this this man good? Is he bad? Or is he slightly deranged? And it's one of those questions that kind of gets explored as the series go on. I won't spoil the plot, don't worry. Everyone's going, no, no, no. So, so kind of questions of character are often the key questions to explore. Now, it's really easy when we kind of flip back 2,000 years and think about Jesus' character and life, we can think, well, it's it's really easy for Jesus because his character has never really been questioned. And we can think of people who don't profess Christian faith, but they still admire him as a human being. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi said, I don't reject Christ, I love Christ. He said, the problem is your Christians aren't very Christ-like. But anyway, you know, he said he thinks Christ was great. Um, The historian Tom Holland has persuasively argued that Jesus' teachings have shaped the whole foundation of Western culture for the last 2,000 years. That doesn't come from someone whose character has a big question mark against it. It's easy to think, isn't it, that if we saw Jesus ministering today, of course we'd admire him. Of course his identity would be acknowledged, his teaching welcomed. Of course we'd see Jesus as somebody of impeccable character. Yet the New Testament gives us a picture very opposite to that. It gives us a picture where Jesus' character and life came under serious challenge from those who knew him best and witnessed him most. And that is nowhere more true than in the passage before us this evening, uh, which Jenny read out for us as we continue our series in Mark's Gospels. As we look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, if you've got the Bibles open in front of you, you can just watch it canter by as we work our way through. We'll see that Jesus' character comes under attack from a range of directions, some quite surprising. And as we imagine ourselves into the scene, we're going to be invited to consider two questions this evening. Who is Jesus for us, and where are we for Jesus? Who is Jesus for us, and where are we for Jesus? If you're here tonight exploring faith, I hope you're going to be encouraged to look afresh at this 2,000-year-old evidence for who Jesus is. If you're here as someone who's been walking with the Lord Jesus for a little while or your whole life, I hope you'll hear a warning that he gives, but also an encouragement to draw near to him. That's where we're going. First of all, who is Jesus for us? This is verses 20 to 30. Now, Mark's gospel, we're going to see this over these weeks, is a beautifully constructed witness to the life and mission of Jesus. It's a game of two halves, okay, Mark's gospel. First eight chapters leading up to 829 is about one question, which is who is Jesus? Uh, and we kind of like Mark's putting together the jigsaw pieces of evidence for who Jesus is. So far, we've seen that Jesus is the one who forgives sins. I thought God was that. Then we've seen Jesus, who's the Lord of the Sabbath. I thought God created the Sabbath. You know, you can get the, the echoes are coming in. 
More evidence is still coming up, leading up to that moment in the middle, the hinge point in the gospel, where Jesus will ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And nowhere does the question about the identity, the character of Jesus come with more tension than it does in our scene today. So we have to imagine Capernaum, which is the market town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was based, absolutely heaving with people who want to see Jesus, to be healed by him, and they're forming such a crowd that Jesus and his disciples can't even go about their daily business, which included going out and getting food. Do you know what I mean? It is absolutely heaving. If it helps to imagine it being oppressively hot, and the next days are going to help us do that, then do that too. Okay? Do you get the scene? It is an absolute melee. And this isn't the case just for an hour or two. It seems to be the case day after day, so much that word reaches Jesus' family back in Nazareth a few days' walk away. And their conclusion he's out of his mind. Here is their son and brother who ran around the streets of little Nazareth behaving like a celebrity in Capernaum, a sort of Galilee love island. He's lost the plot. He's deluded, they conclude. He needs protecting from himself. And so they set out. Another group take a slightly different but similar view. This time it's some of the religious authorities. They come even further, about five days walk up from Jerusalem to check out this now famous celebrity teacher. And their conclusion, verse 22, he's, PS, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. As Mark summarizes it in verse 30 later on, they say he has an impure or an evil spirit. So Jesus' family were saying that Jesus was mad. The scribes, the teachers of the law, were saying that Jesus was bad. And Jesus answers them head on. In verses 23 to 26, he makes the slightly obvious but powerful point that, hang on, Satan's not going to drive out Satan. A demon is not going to drive out a demon. If that happens, Satan himself is doomed. Imagine the scenario where a political party is more concerned with fighting within itself than fighting the opposition. What future does it have? Just imagine. Or to put it in stranger terms, stranger things terms, um, Vecna is not exactly likely to go into a battle against mind, the mind flayer, is he? An evil spirit is not going to be cast out by an evil spirit. Only a spirit aligned with good will cast out a spirit aligned with evil. So Jesus says, well, hang on, that's not going to happen. But he ends his pushback with a real sting in the tail. Verses 28 to 29, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, these words have been much misunderstood, so let me explain what I think is going on. Jesus is basically coping with all sorts of attack on his character, a whole range of grief coming in his direction. And he's saying, there's forgiveness for all of that. <laughs> you know, that can all be dealt with. But there's one route, he said, that will take you down a cul-de-sac. And that is saying that the spirit working in and through Jesus, rather than being holy, is in fact evil. If you write off Jesus as mad or bad, you're cutting yourself up from the very one who can give you the forgiveness you need. And that has consequences, eternal 
stretching beyond this life. What, what Jesus is doing here in the face of sustained pressure is saying that the question of who he is isn't just of academic interest. It really is the most important question we face. Who is Jesus for us? If we write him off as evil, we're, right, we're clating ourselves into a cul-de-sac where there's no forgiveness. However comfortable it may be, we cannot stop at saying that Jesus is good, a good moral teacher. Good moral teachers don't make the claims that Jesus is making for himself here. Jesus is saying that a stronger man has come and is defeating evil one step at a time. A few weeks ago, I was, um, I was walking at 41 degrees, actually, so if you think 41 degrees is too bad, it, you can survive it. Uh, but I was actually also visiting the Israel Museum in Western Jerusalem. It's a fantastic, astonishing collection of archaeological finds from... Uh, across what is now modern-day Israel and the occupied West Bank. And there are a couple of large rooms dedicated to the time of the Romans, about sort of 0 AD, where you can see, among other things, the coffin of Herod the Great, he of nativity plays fame. And rather tucked away in a corner are some archaeological objects relating to Jesus of Nazareth, a heel bone of someone who's been crucified, a, a tablet with the name of Pontius Pilate on it, a funeral casket of the son of Caiaphas, the high priest. It's really well done. But one is left with the impression that Jesus was just a political or religious figure like others of the time, who came and went. This passage takes us away from that view. As the New Testament scholar Tom Wright puts it, there is no middle way. Jesus isn't just a mildly histor interesting historical figure. He is either the one who brought in God's kingdom or a dangerous madman. So let's not lose sleep worrying if we've inadvertently committed the unforgivable sin. That's the way of the Simpsons' Ned Flanders, who worried to Reverend Lovejoy, I'm meek, but I could probably stand to be meeker. Or, I think I might be covered in my own wife. Um, if I recall, Reverend Lovejoy is um, more concerned with his model Thomas the Tang Engine going round the tracks, but that's enough of his pastoral care. No, let's come back. Instead of worrying about whether we've committed the eternal sin or not, actually, let's come back to the more positive way of framing that, which is this. Who is Jesus for us? One in whom we see the spirit and the work of God or the mark of someone else entirely? Jesus' own family didn't get it right. The religious experts didn't get it right. But millions down the ages have looked at the evidence and said with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Who is Jesus for us? The second question is this, is where are we for Jesus? Because in verse 31, um, the scene has moved on. The situation seems to have calmed down. Uh, Jesus is not hemmed in by a pushing, unruly mob. Instead, the picture is a group of a group sitting in a circle, listening to the teaching of Jesus. Okay? And it's at this point that Mark describes the family of Jesus arriving. It will have taken them at least two days to walk from Nazareth to Capernaum in their quest to take charge of Jesus, who they believe is mad. 
Uh, it was really interesting the way that Mark contrasts Jesus' family with the group sitting around him. So that the family are outside and they refuse to go in. The group um, are sitting inside close to Jesus. The, the, the family are standing, ready to move, ready to move on. Whereas the, uh, the group are sitting in the position of attentiveness and obedience, listening to the words of Jesus. And what Jesus do is they kind of use a proxy, but basically what they do is appeal to Jesus' uh, blood ties. Their message is, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Now, Jesus would have been expected to conform to his family's expectation. Familial ties were incredibly strong in the ancient world. You were nothing outside your family. This kind of idea that I can go and make my own way in the world and kind of leave my parents behind, that's entirely alien, even in the Middle East today. You, you, you kind of, you were who you were in family. You were expected to be loyal to them. So, so they're basically saying, they're kind of trumping him, saying, you better behave as your family think you should behave. Which is what makes Jesus' answer so stunning. Look at me at verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those sitting in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is doing nothing less than completely upending, 180ing, the understanding of which way the loyalty flows. Jesus' family believed that he should be loyal to them. And Jesus suggests it's being loyal to him that really matters. They think it's about him being loyal to them. Jesus says it's all about being loyal to him. It's, if that's it, it, it's that that's behind his extraordinary statement that the ones who are sitting around him are his real family because they've got the loyalty right. They understand the way that loyalty needs to flow. His blood family are outside. His new family, a family placed on, uh, based on placing him literally in the center, is with him. So where are we? Where are we for Jesus? I think this, carried, this passage carries with it both a warning and an encouragement. The warning comes in the way that Jesus dismisses the claims of those who want to deal with Jesus on their own terms, who want to slot Jesus into their pre-existent web of loyalties and affiliations. Now, we are not the blood relations of Jesus. But instead of looking down on them saying, oh, they're dreadful, didn't they get it so wrong? Let's just hear the warning for us against seeing any other loyalty as more important than our loyalty to Jesus. When our nationality, be it British or whatever, is more important than our commitment to Jesus, we're making the same mistake as Jesus' family. When our commitment to a particular church tradition stops us seeing other people as followers of Jesus, we're making the same mistake as Jesus' family. When our affiliation to a particular political party ranks as more crucial than our loyalty to Jesus, we're making the same mistake as Jesus' family. Maeve Sherlock, our beloved associate minister here at St. Nick's, speaks powerfully about the impact of being part of an all-party prayer group within the Houses of Parliament. 
Members in that group may disagree fundamentally on matters of policy, but they share a loyalty to Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't disagree with other Christians, as church leaders here in the UK have done with Russian Orthodox leaders over the war in Ukraine, but it does mean that our loyalty is first to Jesus and not to anything else. If we're outside trying to get Jesus to play by our rules, we need to hear the warning words of Jesus. But I want us to hear the encouragement as well. Because what Jesus is saying to those gathered around him is something I think really rather wonderful. He is saying that those who do the will of God and make Jesus their center, they are nothing less than members of Jesus' family. They're not faces in a crowd, not numbers on a list, not names in a register. They are seen and known and loved as Jesus's brothers and sisters. Just soak that in. You are seen and known and loved as a sister and brother of Jesus. And you're not just known, you're not just seen, you're not just loved, not only that. You see, the family was the main mechanism for safety and security in the ancient world. It's how you were protected. So for Jesus to call those sitting around him his family means as well as being seen and known and loved, they were also held and safe. Where are we? Jesus says if we come in and make him our center, we can be in a living relationship with him where we are seen and known and loved and held and safe. We are nothing less than his brother and his sister. I wonder where we find ourselves this evening as we reflect on those two questions. Who is Jesus for us and where are we for Jesus? Perhaps we're exploring faith, coming to St. Nick's for the first time. Perhaps we come to St. Nick's regularly, but we've never answered that question for ourselves. Who is Jesus for us? What would your answer be? The invitation to you this evening is to see Jesus for who he is, not an interesting historical figure or a deluded and dangerous maverick, but as the creator God walking our earth. Nothing less. Perhaps we're here tonight slightly fearful of an uncertain future, an uncertain world, an uncertain week. The invitation for you is to see Jesus as the stronger one who has defeated the threat of evil when he died on the cross. Jesus is not the evil one. He's the one who defeats evil and is able to hold you and me through anything that threatens us. Perhaps we're feeling a bit distant feeling like we're standing outside while everyone else is inside having a special time with Jesus. The invitation for you is that if you've made Jesus your center, by seeing him for who he is, you don't need to stay outside. Jesus calls you in. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. Jesus loves you. He will forgive you, and he will hold you.
Come on in. Our character is important, but it's the character of Jesus who really matters. And tonight we're invited to see in Jesus the man who speaks the truth, who works in power, and who acts in love. That's the Jesus we're invited to believe in, and that's the Jesus to whom you and I are invited to come in and sit as his sister and his brother, seen, known, loved, and held. Let's pray. Oh, loving God, we thank you that our Lord Jesus showed himself to be good and strong and loving and merciful. Give us the grace to believe and give us the grace to draw near. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.